Well, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving with family and friends and were able to just be thankful for God's faithfulness to us and how he's been faithful for us. You know, sometimes when life is difficult or hard or you're in some kind of a battle or something, it can be difficult to see God's faithfulness. It made me think of a guy, have you ever heard the name William McLean, Wilmer McLean? Wilmer, he was, uh, he was a retired grocer, lived in Virginia, and then at the time of the Civil War, and he heard rumblings that the Civil War was about to start, and so he wanted to be in an area where the battle was not going to happen. He didn't want anything to do with war. And so he moved his family up to the D.C. area because he thought, hey, that's going to be safe, it's close to the capital, nothing's going to happen there. Well, the first major battle of the Civil War was the Battle of Bull Run. It took place in Manassas, Virginia, right outside of D.C., right in Wilmer's front yard. In fact, a cannonball actually went through his chimney. His barn was destroyed, and in anger, he got up, he took his family, and he moved to a rural part of Virginia, thinking, surely the war will never come there. Well, several years pass. Uh, General Grant, he has the starving troops of General Lee on the run, and they run to Appomattox, Virginia, just where Wilmer had moved. And wouldn't you know it, that the General Lee and the Confederates surrendered to General Grant in the parlor, the living room of Wilmer McLean's house. This man who wanted nothing to do with war, he found war both in his front yard and then in his living room. Uh, and when the war ended, uh, the soldiers, they knew this was a momentous occasion, and they began to take like memorabilia from Wilmer's home, knowing that, hey, this is going to be valuable someday. And so they took furniture from his house. They took pictures that were hanging on the wall. They even took his girl's doll. And he was left, after, after everybody left, he was left simply with the couch in his living room. A man who wanted nothing to do with war. It started in his front yard, and it ended in his living room. That's how it happened. Well, I imagine that none of us really want war either, do we? I mean, no, nobody, not too many people are like, yeah, war, this is great. No, we, we, we don't want anything to do with battle, with war. That doesn't excite us. But one of the things that Jesus lets us know is that as Christians, as disciples, that we're involved in a battle. I mean, whether we like it or not, there's a constant battle going on. There's a battle of, of flesh and blood. Uh, there's a battle against satanic forces. There's a battle against the value system of this world. There's a battle and what Jesus will tell his disciples is, you can't run from it. You can't just hide away and think that it won't come to you or that you can somehow escape from it or just bury your head in the sand and it'll all go away. It doesn't work like that. That you have to be prepared for battle. And the first step in being prepared for battle is rightly recognizing who Jesus is. We'll see that this morning. Let's go ahead and jump in as we continue our empowered study through the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. Mark 8, 22 through 38. John Mark writes this. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, 
John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them about the Son of Man, how he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So the people are excited to see Jesus. They're always excited to see Jesus. Have you noticed this? The crowds are excited to see Jesus. They come to Bethsaida, and again, the crowds are excited to see Jesus. First thing they do, there's a blind man. They bring the blind man to Jesus. And Jesus takes him by the hand and whisks him away from the crowd. Jesus is going to show compassion on the blind man. He's not simply there to satisfy the curiosity of the crowds. Does Jesus love the crowds? Yes. He's demonstrated his compassion on the crowds time after time after time by teaching them, by spending time with them, by feeding them. He's done a lot for the crowds. But one of the ways he demonstrates his compassion for the crowds is simply to focus on the one. It's not to allow the curiosity and crowd like speak, take hold, but to really just focus on the needs of the individual and to personally meet that person. And so this is what he does. He takes the man away to a private place, away from all the crowds. And then the healing begins. And it begins in kind of a curious way. Jesus spits on him. Now, why does he do that? We don't really know. But listen, when you're blind, you don't care how the healing comes, right? You spit on me, do whatever you want. If you're going to help me see, great. You know, spit all you want. And so Jesus, he spits on him. Why? We don't really know. But he spits on, them, on him. And then like a good doctor, he asks the man, okay, how can you see now? You know, how's it going? Is this, is this treatment working or are, are we solving the issue here? And the man says, well, you know, I mean, I can see a little bit here. I'm seeing some people walking around. They kind of look like trees. Everything's kind of blurry. You know, it's, it's, there's sight, but it's not perfect sight, right? I mean, it's a blur. It's like the, the healing didn't take all the way or something. Or this is very difficult. Or what's going on, Jesus? You didn't quite get it exactly right this time. He can see better, but he still can't see perfectly yet. And so Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes, and then complete sight, complete healing, full restoration of vision. He can see clearly. Jesus tells him, hey, just go home. Don't go back into the village. Just go home. Why? I don't want the publicity of my miracles to be what draws people in, right? I want them to be drawn to me simply for who I am. So he charges the man just to go home. You know, it is interesting, isn't it? that this man didn't receive perfect, clear vision right away, that there was this like process that needed to take place. I mean, we see it, right? The man's eyes are open, he spits on him, he can see a little bit, and then there's full restoration of sight. Like, why is that? Why is there this progression going on? 
Well, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of using this blind man as an illustration of the disciples' spiritual blindness, right? This episode is happening between two uh, episodes of the disciples demonstrating their spiritual blindness, right? Last week, if you remember, they're in the boat and everything. There's just been this feeding of the 4,000. They're in the boat. Jesus is teaching them. He's using the bread illustration. And the disciples, then they're looking at each other. Is Jesus upset about the bread? Like, who forgot the bread? We forgot bread. And he's just shown them. He's just demonstrated to them, I have everything you need for life in ministry. I mean, you're talking about bread. I have everything you need. Focus on me. And right after this, we're going to see there's another illustration of blindness because they don't think, hey, the mission of the Messiah, no, Jesus, that's not what you're supposed to do. They miss what he's about. And so this is kind of like right in there to demonstrate how the disciples, they're beginning to see, but the the sight is still blurry. It's not clear yet as to just who Jesus is. And so it's important to note that we are halfway through Mark's gospel. We've done a good job. We've kind of made it to the halfway point in Mark's gospel. And up until this point, okay, Mark's gospel is 16 chapters long. Here we are at the end of chapter 8. The whole focus on the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel has primarily been about the disciples' inability to rightly see and hear, understand who Jesus is. Okay, they're missing it. Right? We've seen it over and over and over again. Who is this? The winds and the waves obey him. Why is he upset about bread? Who can do such things? There's all these questions. They've been with him a lot, but they still haven't rightly recognized who Jesus is. They're captivated by him, surely. They've left a lot. They've left their jobs. They've left families. They've followed him. They've sacrificed for him. They've even been used by him but they have not rightly identified just who Jesus is yet. They're still like, who is he? He's he's somebody special, we get that, but who is he? That's been the whole first eight chapters. The the disciples' inability to rightly see, their spiritual blindness to understand just who Jesus is. And you know, that's the first step in becoming a disciple, is to rightly recognize Jesus to rightly understand who he is. It's our first step. We must rightly recognize Jesus. Now, this is a huge hinge point in Mark's gospel. This really changes the whole trajectory of the book because what happens at this point, they're on the way, they're, they're walking, and Jesus asks the question, okay, who do people say that I am? The disciples give the answer. Well, you know, some people are saying you're John the Baptist, Some people say you're like Elijah, who's come back. Other people saying you're just a prophet. And then he turns it on them. Okay, how about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, you know, he's the spokesman for the group. And he stands up and he boldly proclaims, you are the Christ. Boom, he's hit it right on the money. He's got it exactly right. Finally, there's some spiritual sight. And this is a dramatic shift in the book because he's rightly identified Jesus as Messiah. Up to this point, they've missed it. And so now, boom, they get it. They, they can see there is sight. But it's not perfect. Now, Jesus asked the blind man, 
okay, what do you see? Jesus asked the disciples, who am I? The blind man, he can see, but not perfectly. It's like, ah, man, the people look like trees moving around here. It's not perfect vision. The first stage of healing is complete, but it's only partial sight. The disciples, they can see, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but their concept of Messiah and his mission and what he's going to do is still very clouded. It's still very blurry. They don't get it yet. And so Jesus begins to explain that, hey, you must suffer. He must be persecuted. He's going to die. All these things are going to happen. It's going to be really bad. See, they don't have a clue of any of that yet. They're, they're blind to all that. They miss the mission of the Messiah. You know, I fear that there are many in the family of God today who have partial sight. They rightly recognize Jesus as Messiah. We understand. Okay, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He died for our sin. He rose again. He defeated sin and death on our behalf. We, we get that. But sometimes we miss that Jesus has not simply saved us for heaven. If that were the case, as soon as we're saved, he'd just take us right up. We'd be in heaven right now. Heaven is great. I mean, all of us, right? We can't wait till we get there. It's a great blessing of being part of the family of God, that when you're with the family of God, well, you're going to be with the family. And that's great. We look forward to that. But he saved us with a purpose, right? I've saved you for good works, which I prepared in advance that you'll walk in them. So there's a purpose here and now. There's a reason for our salvation here and now. And sometimes we have this partial sight and we miss the good works. We miss the purpose of our salvation for the here and now because we are ministers of the gospel now. We're disciple makers now. And that's actually part of what Jesus wanted to get through the heads of the disciples. That, hey, here is the mission of the Messiah. And what's more is I'm going to invite you into that mission that you get to be a part of it. And that's what he'll begin to explain. And so this next section, right, the end here of Mark chapter 8 through the end of Mark chapter 10, there's this dramatic shift in the book. Because as we think about the gospel of Mark, one of the things that I think we've seen together is just how fast Mark moves, right? He's everything's immediately, immediately, immediately. And he's moving so fast, and he leaves out so many details. And sometimes we're like, Mark, I mean, you know, Luke and Matthew, they do a much better job explaining this, Mark. You just kind of give us the, the cliff notes here. We, we want the details. But Mark, he doesn't always give the details. It's just boom, 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 boom. We're moving. Jesus and the disciples, they're crisscrossing the lake back and forth. It seems like they're always in a boat going somewhere. All of that really slows down. It's as if at this point, Mark just hits the brakes and he slows down and he begins to give us details because the classroom is no longer going to be the boat. The classroom is now going to be the path. They're walking on a journey. And as you're walking, it just takes longer. And Mark, he kind of, he kind of stretches that out for us. You'll see some of the longest chapters in Mark's gospel are, are chapters 9 and 10. Because we're getting much more detail. Mark wants us to see all this. It's really important. So we're on the way to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that Peter rightly recognizes Jesus. And it's interesting here that in Mark's gospel, we do get some details left out here at this moment because Jesus does not praise Peter in Mark's gospel. We don't, we don't get that detail. 
He doesn't say, well done, this was revealed to you by your Father. We don't get any of that. In fact, Jesus, he moves straight to the rebuke. In the ESV, it says strictly charged. It's the same word when Jesus rebuked the demons and told them to be quiet. This is what he's doing to Peter and the disciples now. Okay, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Why does, why does he not want them to tell anyone? They finally rightly identify that Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't this the time to go share? I mean, that's what you think, right? Now they get it. Jesus is Messiah. Go share. Go tell everybody. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. He rebukes them. Why? Because they don't understand the, the mission of the Messiah yet. They don't understand what he's supposed to do, what he's about. They have a, a cloudy view of Messiah. And so Jesus begins to correct them. And he does this right away. Mark says that he just spoke plainly to them. He just told them how it is. Hey, here's what's going to happen. All these people are going to turn against me. The elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, religious leaders, political leaders, they're all going to turn against me. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to suffer. It's going to get ugly. And just when you think it's bad, it's going to get even worse because I'm going to be put to death. I mean, this is like totally disorienting to the disciples. They've just figured out, okay, you're a Messiah, and now you're telling us all this is going to happen? It's almost as if Jesus is undermining their faith to bring them to a deeper level of faith. So they'll understand not just, okay, I'm Messiah, yes, but what is Messiah? Who is Messiah? What is the mission of the Messiah? Because they think, they had this convoluted idea Okay, Messiah comes, here's what's going to happen. It's going to be great. I mean, we're, we're on the inside here. I mean, everywhere we go, there's going to be cheering crowds. There's going to be this great triumphant kingdom. We're going to have military might and strength and wealth and power. Everyone's going to love us. This is going to be so good. And Jesus, he's promising something else. He's promising suffering. He's promising persecution. He's promising death. I mean, you understand how disorienting this is? It's, it's so confusing, it's so disorienting that Peter, who has just proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, actually has the gall to pull Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him. He, he knows, he's just said that you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God, I recognize this. But hey, Jesus, I need to set you straight on a few things. Everything you're saying that's not going to happen to the Messiah. I mean, I don't know where you get the idea that you're going to suffer and be persecuted and die and all that. None of that's going to happen. I mean, you're going to bring in the kingdom. It's going to be great. And Jesus, he looks back at the crowds, he looks at Peter, and he rebukes him. Here he is, the leader of the disciples in many ways, and yet Jesus' arch enemy, Satan, has entered him, right? There's this alignment now that Peter has with Satan, and it's a stunning moment because Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And that is a sobering thought, isn't it? That when we have in mind the things of men, blindly, unknowingly, we actually align ourselves with Satan, not intentionally, I know, but when we put the things of men, we put our mission, our desires, our wants over and above the wants, mission, desire of God, we actually align ourselves with Satan. The same thing happens. And so the challenge is we must align ourselves with Jesus 
And we do that by putting his mission above our own. His mission must be preeminent. You know, there's a big difference between prominence and preeminence. You know this? So, for instance, let me explain it like this. Prominence is like first among equals, okay? Everybody's equal, but, you know, you're my favorite. Listen, if I were to tell Steph, my wife, you know, I love all the ladies. I mean, I'm telling you, I love every lady out there, but, you know, of all the ladies, you're probably my favorite. That's not going to go over so well. I'm just telling you right now. I mean, I'm the, I don't know that I recover from that one. She has no interest in being prominent in my life. Now, she doesn't want to be like my favorite of all the ladies. That, that's, that's not her interest at all. She wants to be one and only, right? Over and above everyone else. This is Jesus. He has no interest in being prominent in your life. Okay, hey, Jesus, you're really important to me, but you know, I've got my own stuff that I'm working on too, and all this is really important. And I'll give you this slice of the pie, and it's the biggest slice, you know, because you're the most important, but all this other stuff, well, that's for me. Jesus, no. That, that's not what I'm interested in. Those are not the type of disciples that I'm trying to create here. I want to be preeminent. First, with no equal. Right? And so, we put his mission preeminent in our lives, his wants preeminent in our lives. And whenever we fail to do that, whenever it's simply prominent or, or even worse, where we put our wants, our desires, everything else above him and his wants, his desires, his mission, we actually align ourselves blindly, unknowingly, unwittingly with Satan. And so this is so critical that at this moment, you get the idea that they're walking along, right? They're walking towards these villages, the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is teaching as they're going. He's explaining. He's teaching plainly to them. Then Peter pulls him aside, you know, for a moment, has this rebuking session. And Jesus, at this moment, it's like he stops everything. Okay, before we take another step here, everybody's got to get this. And so he calls the disciples to him. He calls the crowds to him. Everybody's around. There's this teaching moment, and Jesus begins to teach them. And you know what's interesting? In Mark's gospel, how many times have we seen it where Mark just says, and Jesus began to teach them? You know, or Jesus taught them many things. And every time it says that, I'm like, Mark, I wasn't there. If you could just tell me the many things that Jesus taught, I would really appreciate it right? Because I want to know it all. I don't know about you. I'm like, give me all the details. I want to know everything that Jesus taught those three days when they're just camped out in that desolate place. Give me all the details, Mark. Mark doesn't do that. It's just Jesus taught them many things. I'd sure like to know those many things. Well, this is one of those moments where Mark actually pulls in and he actually tells us, okay, stop on the way and Jesus begins to teach them and we get the details of the teaching. And what it is, is it's all about discipleship. It's Jesus making sure that his disciples are rightly aligned with him, that they're going to put his mission, his will for their lives over and above their mission and their will for their lives. And so this is a great uh, just discourse here on discipleship. And it begins because Peter's vision is still blurry, right? I understand that you're the Messiah. I can see that, but there's still scales on it's still partial sight because he does not understand the mission of the Messiah. He doesn't understand what Jesus has really come to do. So Jesus is beginning to explain. 
And then saying, okay, and here's what it means. I'm inviting you into this mission. And here's what it looks like to be invited into this mission. First, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. Right? Why? He wants to be preeminent. He's not looking for prominence. He wants to be preeminent. So you say no to self. And it's this weird thing even. I mean, you try to do that in life, and it's very hard. It's, It's actually almost impossible to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. Say, you know what, I'm not going to put my interests, my wants, my desires, all these things first. I'm simply going to bring that all and lay it all before Jesus and say, Jesus, what would you want me to do here? How would you want me to orient my life? How would you want me to prioritize my life? And how does that touch every moment of every day, every aspect of life? Jesus, you are preeminent. And so he's saying that's the first step. I must be preeminent. You must deny yourself and make sure that I'm preeminent. And then number two, you must take up your cross. You gotta take up your cross. Now, for his audience, when they're hearing this, there's a very vivid picture that comes to mind, okay? And it's not the cross of Jesus because that hasn't happened yet. The disciples, they they still like Jesus dying on the cross. If you were to tell them that at this point, as Jesus just kind of did, it's like, no way. I can't even imagine that. You're the Messiah. That's not the cross they're thinking about. When Jesus says this, what they would have in mind is an insurrection attempt that took place about 30 years prior. There's a guy named Judas who led a rebellion against Rome. Well, the insurrectionists failed. And what happened? The Romans, they they took these insurrectionists and they crucified them on crosses and they lined these crosses on the streets of Galilee. It was a warning to any other Jewish person out there that, hey, if you're going to come against Rome, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be on a cross. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, this is what they're thinking about. This is the image that they have in mind. These are the stories that's being told. And so, you're calling me to this? So we have a problem sometimes because we can turn the Bible into an American book. And I've heard too many sermons uh, where the cross is some kind of metaphorical thing, you know? Or uh, like uh, your bad back, that's the cross you have to bear. Or your unforgiving spouse, that's your cross. Or your rebellious child, that's your cross. Or, you know, some kind of health issue, that's your cross. That's not what Jesus had in mind. He wasn't talking about metaphorical crosses or symbolic crosses or anything. He's talking about a literal cross that you have to deny safety and security. That those are not like your number one priorities. Your number one priority in life is that Jesus is preeminent. And if it costs me death, it costs me death. It is worth it. And you know what? The disciples seemed to get that. The early church seemed to get that, that following Jesus unto death is worth it. And so we can go through, just history tells us this, that Matthew, he was killed by being slain with a sword in Ethiopia. Mark, he died in Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets there. Luke, He was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. Peter, he was crucified, but before he was crucified, his wife was crucified. And then when it was his turn to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord Jesus Christ. Crucify me upside down. And so Rome did. 
James, he was thrown from the pinnacle of a temple down to the streets below, and then mobs came with clubs and beat him to death. Bartholomew, he was skinned alive. Andrew, he was crucified on a cross, and as he's being crucified on a cross, he spent his dying breaths preaching until he could preach no more. Thomas, he was run through with a spear in India. Jude was shot to death by arrows. Matthias was stoned to death and then beheaded. Barnabas was also stoned to death. Paul, he had various tortures and persecutions and was eventually beheaded in Rome at the request of the emperor Nero. I mean, you go on and on and on. And we see that the early disciples, people here who I mentioned from the early church, they got this message that this is what it means to take up your cross. And, you know, we have a problem that we live in such comfort that the idea of a cross unto death, well, it's got to be something else because are we really going to die for this? Let me tell you, the woman in Russia who claims Christ and is then exiled into Siberia, she understands this passage. The boy in Iran who claims Christ and then has his fingers cut off, he understands this passage. My friend Daniel in Sierra Leone who claims Christ and then has his Muslim father chase him, hunting him down, trying to kill him, he understands this passage. And you know what they all understand as well? It's worth it. It's worth it. I give everything to follow Christ. See, here's the thing about Jesus. He does not invite us to a comfortable life. He doesn't say, hey, come on, life's going to be peachy. It's all going to be great. Everything's going to go so smooth. He doesn't invite us to a life of comfort. He invites us to a life of purpose, to a life that matters, to this empowered cause of making disciples. Lastly, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to follow me. You have to take up your cross, and then you have to follow me. I mean, Jesus is in charge. He's in the front. He's calling the shots. He's managing. He has the reins. As we look at the calls of discipleship that Jesus gives, you know, one of the things that in all the Gospels, and you just see this over and over, Jesus never sugarcoats the call to discipleship. Have you noticed that? He never kind of bribes the disciples into this. Hey, be my disciples, and guess what? You know, you're going to get a pay raise. You'll live in a nice house. Everybody's going to love you. I mean, the crowds are going to cheer for you. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love every minute of it. You know, come on, be my disciples. It's never that. He never sugarcoats it. If anything, he always accentuates the negative. So you need to know that if you're going to be my disciples, you're going to have to deny yourself. That being my disciple might result in death. That you have to follow me. That I'm going to be preeminent. That people are going to hate you on account of me. That people are going to persecute you on account of me. This is the call of discipleship. This is what he offers But at the same time, one of the things I love is that Jesus never calls us to something that he himself hasn't already done. Have you noticed that? Jesus never says, like, hey, come, take your cross, and, you know, you guys are going to have your crosses, and don't worry, I'm going to be cheering you on. You know, you guys can do it. I'm going to be rooting for you up in heaven. It's going to be great. You can do it. He's never saying, you know, what, you're going to be persecuted, and as you're being persecuted and people are saying nasty things about you and all this, don't worry, because I'll be saying good things about you. No. He endured it all himself. Like, he went through it all. I mean, think, this is 
First step, deny yourself. I mean, we're coming up on Christmas. Jesus becoming man. Do do you realize what he had to deny just to become man? He leaves the comforts of heaven to embrace the confines of earth. He takes on the limitations of humanity. He's born a baby, the the creator of the universe who spoke it all into existence. He takes on all these limitations. Talk about denying self. Yes, he denied self. So Paul says in Philippians, and and then take up your cross. Jesus did that. He took up a cross. And follow me, Jesus followed. He came to do the will of the Father. He says, I'll put, God, not my will, but yours. See, everything that Jesus calls us to, it's what he's already done. Why? Because he's conforming us into his image. He's not conforming us into some other image. It's not like, okay, I'm going to conform you into a a gentler image, a, a more comfortable image, a a nicer image. He's not saying, I'm going con- to conform you into uh, a better image. Like, you're going to be even better than me, superior. You're going to do all, like, you're going to be able to do all this stuff, and I'm going to be rooting you on. I'm going to conform you into that image. No, we're being conformed into the image of Christ. And so, how did Christ live? What did he do? This is what I want for you. We're being conformed. How Do you make sure that you do not align yourself with Satan? You align yourself with the character of Christ. You put his will, his mission, his wants above your own, and you allow him to conform you into his image. You align yourself with the character of Christ. And Jesus says it's all worth it. He he makes this great statement right after this, that whoever will lose himself, he's talking about death still, Whoever will lose himself for my sake and the gospels will save himself. Just when you think, is this really worth it? I'm going to live this radical life. Like, I mean, people are going to look at me like I'm crazy if I, if I go all in like this. I mean, you imagine how things, tough things are going to be for me at my job or school or wherever. Like, this is hard in my neighborhood. It's going to be so uncomfortable. It's worth it. Even after you've given everything, even your life, you end up saving yourself. It's all worth it. And then just to kind of make the point and make sure, okay, there's no room for masquerading Christians here. There's no room for undercoving, undercover disciples or anything. That's not, that's not what he has in mind. He then asks these two piercing questions. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Like, what's your primary pursuit in life? Is it Wealth? Riches? Is it time with family? Is it fun? Adventure? I mean, what's your primary pursuit? If it's not Jesus, if he's not preeminent, the primary pursuit is wrong. And there isn't a rich man out there who would say, you know what? At the end of his life, when he's about to die, who wouldn't cash it all in just to be able to breathe the breath of life more and to be able to run and have strength and just enjoy. No one would, anyone would trade it all in for that. And so then the second question, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In many ways, it's a rephrase of the first question, really. And he's asking the question, what's the price tag on your soul? What can Satan come and offer you that would make you say, you know what? Disciple-making life, 
That's not for me. I'm out. What would it be? Is it riches, wealth, nice house, nice car, more time with family, more time with friends? What, what, what would the offer have to be? And then he makes this beautiful, but at the same time terrifying promise. If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. But if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. You know, sometimes we think that we can live the Christian life kind of like Wilmer McLean. That we can just kind of go and hide out and, hey, maybe the battle will never come to us. I can just be a secret Christian. I can be aligned with whoever I want to be aligned with. You know, my relationship with God is just between me and God. No one else really needs to know about it. You know, it's a private thing, you know, religion, private thing. Jesus says, no, he doesn't give that option. He doesn't say that at all. He says, no, I want you to demonstrate it. I want you to live it. I want you to verbalize it. I want it to come out. And if it does not come out, if, if you will not confess me before people, if you're ashamed of me, then he makes, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. And we're almost like, well, Jesus, you know, I believed. So how could you be ashamed? And the point that Jesus is making is, you didn't really know me. You, you didn't rightly recognize who I am. Why? Because if you rightly recognize Jesus, what we see throughout the Gospels, anyone who rightly recognizes him, well, there is this magnetism about Jesus. There's this joy that Jesus brings. There's this, you have to know about Jesus. There's this desperation to know him more and to know him better and to bring other people along. We see it time and time again. Everywhere he goes, what's happening? People are flocking to him and they're bringing other people to him and people get healed and Jesus tells people, don't tell anybody. What do they do? They can't keep their mouth shut. It's every single time. This is what happens. And to think, well, I can be undercover. Just, I don't give that option. I must be preeminent. Because the point is this, if you're unwilling to bear the cross, you'll be unfit for the crown. If you're unwilling to bear the cross, you'll be unfit for the crown. Jesus, he makes us fit when we recognize he's over and above it all. This is not a prerequisite for salvation. It's just a natural outcome from once you really rightly recognize Jesus. Jesus isn't putting parameters on it, okay? If you tell X many people, then you'll be saved. That's not what he's doing. He's just showing you, hey, once you know me, this is what happens. This is just the natural outcome. If you don't know me, it's not going to come out because you'll think, oh, whatever the world says, there's a battle. He's equipping us to be a part of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are faithful. And God, that when you call us into a relationship with yourself, into a life of discipleship, that you speak plainly to us, that you tell us very clearly what it means to be a disciple. God, just as you spoke clearly to Peter and the disciples about what your mission was, you speak clearly to us and how you invite us into that mission. And God, in one sense, when we look at it, it's terrifying. But God, when we, when we pull the blinders away and we simply see you, and you are preeminent and you have your right place in our lives, 
We realize you are worth it all. We trade it all away, everything, just for more time with you. There's a desperation to know you and to make you known. God, would you give us that desperation in our hearts and in the way we live our lives? We recognize we need your help for that. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, we ask. In the gracious name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, Central, I just want to remind you that if you have not already, as you're leaving today, to grab this uh, devotional light and life, I think you're going to really enjoy it. You know, I'm excited for these Christmas devotionals every year, but this one, I'm telling you, I've read through most of them already, and you guys have done such a great job. I'm really excited for you to go through this with your families and friends. So maybe there's, maybe there's another friend you want to uh, let know about this. Grab one for them too. Go through it with them. And then also go ahead, if you have not already, but just mark if you're able to be with us Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock that evening. I'm telling you, it is, it, just my opinion, our best service of the year. I, all, I mean, it charges me up for the whole year ahead. It is a great service. And... Um, where we just get to worship our Lord Jesus together and just see in a very tangible way how we are, Jesus invites us now to be the light of the world. So uh, please make those plans to be with us. In the meantime, this week, share Jesus, impact, impact people. We love you, Central.